you know, we're talking about being a creative technologist, but I feel like I feel like so much of technology is creative nowadays. It's really in kind of leveraging your own experiences and your own background and finding where there might be a place in the technology world for you based on that. I came from a theater background and an arts background, so creative technology made sense for me. But if you come from a background that is in helping people and serving people, you might be looking into where is the intersection of service and technology rather than arts and technology. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by creative technologist Bo Bell. Thanks so much for joining us, Bo. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. First, please explain what a creative technologist does. So a creative technologist that could have a few different definitions depending on who you're speaking to. But in my mind, a creative technologist is someone who uses technology and their creative self to solve problems. So these problems could be business problems, they could be practical problems, logistical problems. It's all about using problem-solving skills that come from a creative standpoint to assess a problem or assess a task or assess a need and then determine how to use technology to fulfill that need or solve that problem. Wow, what fun. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes those problems are for, like I said, for business purposes. Sometimes they're for creative purposes. And I've done a lot of both. I'd be happy to, to discuss and tell you a little bit more about both of those. But it really goes back to having foundation in the two different disciplines of creative arts and technology. So sort of a foot rooted in each of those. There's a lot of discussion, I feel, about people saying, this is a left brain profession. This is a right brain profession. I feel like creative technology really kind of bridges the two. So can you give us an example of what you do, how, how you have implemented? Sure. So I worked on a project uh, several years ago that was a project for a large corporation, one of the big corp- like Fortune 50 corporations here in the States, in which they hired a design studio to create an interactive artwork for the lobby of their new corporate headquarters. And in doing this, the design studio came up with some ideas and kicked around some in their sort of internal creative meetings and said, the way we'd like to do this artwork is we would like to use sort of some local inputs to create this interactive piece of audiovisual improvised artwork. They wanted to use some things from the environment where the building was. This is in Seattle. That might tell you a little bit about what the company was. But in their corporate, their new corporate buildings in Seattle, they wanted to use local variables, local environmental inputs, as it were, to sort of drive this artwork. My expertise is in interactivity as it relates to the creative arts. I started working with them to put together a list of what might be some of the possible inputs we would use. And so we started talking about using uh, weather data, traffic data, you know, real time, maybe news feed elements, things like that. And then we also started discussing using actual uh, data from people moving through the building. What I proposed was using a technique called computer vision, the uh, short version is CV in the, in the lingo. And in CV, that involves programming computers to quote unquote see things the way that humans do. 
So to pick out an object and track it in a video feed, for example. So if you imagine a video in which someone throws a ball across a room or someone walks across a stage is another application we've done. How can a computer track that one person or that one flying object and differentiate between what is that object and what's the background? It has object classification capabilities. Right. So programming the computer to be able to classify an object, to recognize it, to track its movement, and then also perhaps to track more complex movements such as gestures. So when a human being raises their hand, turns their body, nods their head, programming a computer to be able to see those things. So what we did was we worked together. I worked along with a visualizer and a, what I call a a composer, a sonifier, someone who generated the sounds in real time. And another person who kind of put together the control system and took in the real time data from traffic and weather feeds and analyzed it. Um, And I wrote the code to track the movement of people through the space. So what we did was If you imagine green screen, I think most people are familiar with green screen technology nowadays. You see it at museums where kids can superimpose themselves over a dinosaur scene or something like that. Well, in essence, that's a form of computer vision where the computer has this green background and it learns to do what's called background subtraction. Basically, everything that's green like that gets removed and another background can be superimposed where that was. But that's a very rudimentary form. It is very rudimentary and it's also fallible. So if someone's wearing something green, the same color as the screen, then that part of their clothing might be subtracted as well. But it's more complicated when you don't have that green background. So... A creative application of technology here was how can we track people using computer vision in a space in which the background is changing, in which the lighting color elements will change depending on time of day and seasonal effect, in which people's clothing can't be fixed for, people's size and shape can't be solved for because it's not the same person. I've done applications of this where there's an actor on stage and you know the actor and you know the costume, it's a bit easier because you know exactly what the computer needs to look for. In this case, it could be anyone wearing anything. So how do we track those people. I did research and came up with a solution of using thermal cameras rather than regular light cameras. So a thermal camera will track the heat of the person. So in essence, what we did was we set up two cameras. One was an overhead camera that tracked the movement of people in the sort of two-dimensional floor space of this large lobby of the building. It was probably 100 feet on square, so it was a very large space. Overhead thermal camera that tracked people moving through the space and then sent that data into the sort of large brain of the project. And then another hotspot camera that was set up near the main entrance to the space in which people, there was a, the, the company had decided they would put maybe a sign in a circle on the floor and say, interact with our artwork by, you know, standing here. And so a, the cam- thermal camera trained on that spot would pick up gestures and movements of people. So what we did was we put together a plan to use the sort of peop- the, the data from the overhead camera, people moving around to generate real time visual particles on the screen at one end of the space and also sound particles in the sonification. So little blips and blops in a sort of constant stream of sound that's playing as part of this artwork. Then we use the data from the person standing in the hotspot to manipulate that in real time. So if you imagine a blips and blobs, audio and visual blips and bleeps on a screen and in a sound field, the person standing in the hot spot by moving their hands, waving their arms, making different gestures, can sort of warp or bend the fabric of that visual field and the audio stream that's coming out to do real-time manipulations of the sound and the video. 
There were a lot of technical challenges that had to be solved, such as if someone comes in holding a hot Starbucks coffee cup, then that's going to throw off the gestural field a bit. But again, using our background in the creative arts, there is a a notion that, and particularly in live theater, which was my first career before changing more into the technology side, there's this notion that those are all part of the performance, that the variables you can't control for become a part of the artwork in essence. So if people move through wearing parkas in the winter and their heat signatures don't come through as well, then you have a sort of dampened audiovisual output in the artwork, and that kind of mirrors the season. So it, it the artwork will change with the seasons based on things like that. Similarly, if you have people coming in with hot cups of coffee, that makes more pinpoints rather than larger heat signatures. And therefore, that will also change the resultant artwork. I would say that you've truly justified the word creative in your title. And the technology as well, I hope. And the technology, both. What an incredible melding of the two. It was a really, really fun project to work on. Fascinating. I'd yeah. love to see it. This is... Not one of those defined professions. So it's a very, it's a very fluid. It's very fluid. And as I said before, the definition of creative technologist really depends on who is using the term. I have a colleague at work now who works a lot with visual artists and he's a composer and sound engineer. And what he does is he looks at the artwork, performance, dance piece they're trying to portray and thinks about how he can use computer programming to generate some sound or manipulate environmental sounds to accompany the performance. So there is a big improvisatory element to the idea of creative technologists. There are other people who use their creative background and their knowledge of technology to solve problems, maybe having to do with under, underwater research. How do microphones pick up sound underwater and how can We use our creative background in sound design to create filters that can help scientists to pick out individual creature sounds in an underwater recorded stream, for example. Let's take a step back and get your path to the present moment. What you wanted to pursue in college, you know, just briefly touch on that and what led you to this change. Sure. So as a kid and as a teenager... I had a lot of interest in digital technology, which was really new when I was a kid in the 80s. Video games, my Atari at home. I learned to do some very rudimentary computer programming, Um, had a great computer teacher in school, elementary school, who let us play games, but also kind of showed us some of the basics, literally the programming language basic back in the 80s. And I was very interested in that and trying to see what we could build with that. And I kind of stuck with it as I grew up, but I also... As I was maturing, I got into other things like sports and girls and friends and socializing and skating, skateboarding was a big thing I did, and music. And I, my life really changed when I changed schools in seventh grade and signed up for orchestra because I really wanted to learn to play the cello. And unbeknownst to me, at this new public school, you could only sign up for orchestra if you had prior experience. And where it said the prior experience field, I put zero. So they put me in band instead. And that's where I met the band director who really kind of changed my life because he was a very dynamic, very creative person. And I really loved playing music in this group. Before that, I had taken some piano, but it never really stuck. But I was really into popular music. I had tapes and records and knew every song on the radio. And I really wanted to learn more about music and get into it. And coming up through band and then orchestra, I played the bassoon. And that's what I started in. 
But I also, with bassoon, you can't march, and I wanted to do marching bands, so I learned percussion and started playing drums and then started playing in rock bands, etc. When I came out of high school, I really wanted to be a composer. That was my sort of chosen career path. I thought at the time, my 18-year-old self wanted to be a composer while also playing in bands and things like that. And when I went to college, I had planned to study music composition. I had taken the AP Music Theory in high school, and... I went to a small and very liberal and very sort of experimental college, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And when I started at Wesleyan, because I had taken AP music theory, there wasn't a place in the composition track for me my first semester of college. I was ahead of the basic, the intro composition, but I was, I basically had tested into the second semester. So I couldn't take composition my first semester. And this is what I knew with all of my being that I wanted to do was to compose and learn orchestration and instrumentation and write, you know, neoclassical, modern film scoring. I didn't, something along those lines. And since I couldn't start on that, I looked through the course offerings instead, and I chose to take a course on the history of experimental and electronic music. And that changed everything. I started studying music by composers like John Cage and Pauline Oliveros and Anthony Braxton. And I had never had any idea that any of this kind of music existed. And a lot of it was made using experimental techniques, microphone techniques, playback techniques. One of my professors, Alvin Lucier, had recorded a seminal piece of experimental music in which he sat in a room and recorded his voice speaking a short passage and then played it back through a speaker and re-recorded the loudspeaker. It's called I Am Sitting in a Room. And he played it back and and then re-recorded over and over about 45 times. And over the course of half an hour, By the end, you couldn't hear the words anymore, just the sounds that were made by the echoes of the room that he was playing it in. So it was using recording techniques to explore an acoustic space, which I thought was fascinating. I was also a double major in physics, and I was really interested in acoustics as part of the greater physics canon. So this kind of music was right up my alley. I mean, this isn't stuff that, you know, you're going to sell a million records doing, but it was really interesting to me. And I really gravitated toward the computer aspect of it, digital audio synthesis. So by the end of my time at Wesleyan, I had carved a path from instrumental neoclassical composer to electronic and computer music. And this was before, a little bit before sort of DJing and and techno music got really big, which is now a very viable career path in electronic music. There weren't a lot of those at the time. So when I graduated from college, I, I had a concert, senior concert, that was all interactive computer music. And interactive computer music was very cutting edge. So using a live performance to drive accompaniment for that performance. So having a microphone tracking a performer on stage, and as they improvise or play a score, the sounds are picked up by a computer and used to generate a real-time improvisational soundscape using synthesizers, drum machines, percussive beats, samples, so small snippets of recording. So my senior concert was basically interactive computer music of having some performers I knew play live on stage, and I created soundscapes that would go with them interactively in real time using the computer programming that I had done. And that really kind of put it together for me, and that was the beginning of my work as a creative technologist. But the path of how I got from there to here was not a very direct one. There's, there were not a lot of jobs doing this sort of thing. When I graduated college, the most obvious entry-level job for me doing this would be working in an electronic music studio or a recording studio with 
digital recording or traditional analog reel-to-reel tape recording. Those jobs are pretty few and far between, and I didn't really understand networking when I was 22 years old the way that I do now, and I didn't really leverage my professors and their contacts to try to get a job. Instead, I just went and started calling recording studios and calling things like that, and I couldn't find a job doing that, but I did get a few gigs doing live music for festivals and clubs and performances and rock shows and things like that. And it really enjoyed myself at that time. And and that kind of led me roundabout to the theater because there's plenty of work in live sound and theater. So after graduating with a degree in music with a focus in electronic and computer music and particularly interactivity, I found myself a year or two later starting a career in theater. And I was working as a sound designer doing uh, composition and soundscapes for a lot of plays off Broadway, off off Broadway, little tiny like hole in the wall theaters in the city. And then also doing sound for live shows and performances and recordings and things like that. And one of the first gigs I got was an internship with the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. I spent a summer here in Cold Spring. Um, I got paid 75 bucks a week plus gas money and plus room and board to live with the company and stay with the actors and make tape recordings of sounds to use in the shows because it was all on cassette tape back then and build props and scenery because I'd done a lot of tinkering with electronics. That summer was Midsummer Night's Dream and working with great Terry O'Brien, I built sunglasses that had blinking lights in them, which weren't (laughs) that available. And all the little fairies wore those and that kind of signified that they were were invisible fairies when they put those on and started blinking. So that kind of gave the idea of these little fairies flitting around in the ether around the main characters who are performing on stage. So I was just doing things like that. But I really fell in love with the theater and that lifestyle and the people are so dynamic and interesting and creative. And I realized this is an area in which I can use my background in audio and in electronics and computers. And also I had construction skills. My father was a home builder. So I grew up slinging hammers and pouring concrete and painting and doing a little bit of everything in that world. So, And that's all needed in the theater. So I kind of started a career in technical theater. So working behind the scenes, off stage, I had no desire to act, but I loved um, working with the actors, building the sets and working a bit on lighting and using what my electronics and other technology skills to help build out props and things like that, and then doing all the sound and music. And I started a career in theater and worked in the city in theater for about five years, but I didn't get to do as much of the programming as I wanted. And that was kind of my, I had that other foot in the computer world and was really looking for opportunities to do that. So after I worked in theater for about five, six years, I started thinking, is this what I want to continue doing? And the turning point for me was I did a a big show at the New York Theater Workshop, which is one of the pillars of the off-Broadway scene in New York, the sort of downtown scene, you know, experimental, avant-garde, really cool, interesting theater. The play was uh, the New York premiere of a play called First Love by Chuck Mee, who's a really acclaimed playwright. And it was at New York Theater Workshop, and I got the gig of sound designer. The show was great. Uh, The actors were um, Ruth Malachek and Fred Neumann, who are part of the Mabu Mines company, who just are icons in the downtown theater scene in New York. And the play was really eye-opening. To me, it represented kind of a, a, a fork in the road where, in which I said, is this what I really want to do? Because I can parlay this into more gigs and make a living doing sound design in theater and possibly one day get to Broadway or um, stick with the off-Broadway, the more avant-garde kind of thing. 
But I didn't see a path to do that and work in the digital programming side of my background. And I really wanted to try to incorporate that as well. And so the other fork for me at that point was graduate school. So I applied to graduate school. I applied to five programs. They were all out West because I was ready to get a break from New York. I grew up in Tennessee and I love New York, but I also love the West Coast and wanted to go spend some time out there. And all five programs I applied to had very good programs in interactive digital media. So using digital programming along with multimedia in creative ways. One of them was CINMAT at UC Berkeley, Stanford, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget all the acronyms now, but in applying to these, I received a full fellowship to the University of California, Santa Barbara. And they had a brand new program, Media Arts and Technology. And that program was actually still being created, but I was accepted into the music program with the understanding that I would transition into the media arts program once it got approved for PhD by the UC Regents. So that's what I did. And in doing so, I got back into the technology side. I started programming. I started building synthesis engines and sound filters, uh, building apps that would run on a Macintosh desktop computer to do real-time synthesis, real-time audio filtering, things like that. And I really became a programmer in ways that I hadn't been before. I really learned the deeper level of that kind of craft. And that program really kind of prepared me for who I am now in that it gave me a very solid foundation in computer science. I had dabbled in programming in undergraduate and in teaching myself, but I had never taken true computer science foundational courses. So I did that. I really learned the kind of low-level programming that you need to build a foundation. I had the programming now that I needed, and I still had the creative foundation, and I started working toward how I wanted to put the two together, and I reached back to my background in theater. So I started working toward a dissertation on real-time interactive theater using tracking, computer systems for tracking of audio, video, movement, um, some electromagnetic uh, techniques for picking up movement of people on stage, kind of almost like a theremin, if you will, which is using your body to affect electromagnetic fields and using that to generate music, and started working toward this dissertation on various applications of, um, of how to use technology to supplement the creative side of theater and create a truly interactive experience for the audience. During this time, I met my wife. We got married. And just, just around the time I passed my examinations for my PhD and was set to begin on my dissertation, we had our son. And at that moment, I had to put the PhD on hold and go to work because now I had a baby to support. So we moved back to New York. I got the blessing of my professors to take time off from the PhD and, and start you know, working and, and would come back to that later was the assumption always. We moved back to New York and I started looking for work that would be something that would support us, but also that would have sort of creative and technology aspects in it. And I was introduced to a fellow who became a mentor to me named David Rose. He is a investor and entrepreneur in the New York startup technology scene. He's kind of called the father of angel investing 
in the technology space. He's one of the founders of the New York Angels, which is a group of investors who invest in early stage technology companies, pre-venture capital, you know, just when they're really more at the idea stage and prototype stage before the company has really gotten up and running. And he hired me to work with him and come up with ideas for new technology ventures and also to manage his incubator in which startup companies that he had funded were given office space. So I ran a video studio there for them to use to shoot pitches and proposals. I ran the incubator space from a sort of technology and IT perspective. And then I also used my background to kind of help them creatively solve technology problems. So when they were trying to figure out how to build this project that, they, that was the, their seed idea that was you know, the root of their business, I brought a sort of creative technology perspective to that. And that's when I really kind of got involved more on in the business side of creative technology. This was in 2010. So iPhones were brand new. Apps were brand new. The whole concept of having these smartphones and building apps for those and starting entire businesses based on building apps for a new computer that you carry in your pocket, this was all novel. This was brand new. And most of the companies that we were working with were either building apps or were building platforms to leverage the internet to help people connect better, do business better, things like Meetup when Meetup was first starting. Things like Drop.io, which was a predecessor of Dropbox. So these are all new technology companies leveraging apps and smartphones and the internet to kind of create a new ecosystem. So in working with them, I was able to bring my creative background into that startup scene and the New York downtown app technology scene to really kind of work with some of these companies and try to help make a difference. What an amazing journey. And you live... During a very exciting time, there's a lot of revolutionary, especially the little co- pocket computers, revolutionary. Yes, every, everything changed. Everything has been changing so fast. I mean, how we connect with each other is so different than it was 10 years ago. I, I feel like a sort of caricature of myself when I talk to my kids about how I didn't have a smartphone when I was a kid, but it's true. None of us had pocket computers, even when I was a teenager. I, when we went to college, when we went to go out to parties, we would see our friends at dinner and say, okay, I think we're going to go hit these parties. Maybe we'll see you there. And then that was it. You were just out. And it was very kind of freeform and you move around. And the same thing with on, on the weekend, during the week, how you connected with people. If they weren't home, you didn't connect with them. You just kind of move on and do the next thing. And now everybody's constantly you know, able to reach each other, able to message each other and connect with each other. And this revolution has enabled that. It's changed the way we interact as a society. There's also the kind of contemporary culture of people spending so much time on their phones and not having as much face time. And that's also changed. Living through this period, this revolution in smartphone technology and kind of being on the forefront, I can look back now and say, I had no idea that the things that were happening then would evoke the changes that have kind of taken over and really shaped our lives and certainly will be shaping our children's lives in the future. It was a very exciting time to live in and still is. There's Things are still changing so fast. And, you know, my son is 11 and my daughter's six and what they're going to be seeing when they're 18 and 25, I can't even imagine. But I feel like the creative side of my creative technology enables me to kind of try to project what life might be like for them and try to help them, help guide them toward that future. I feel like having the background in technology, but also the sort of creative foundation enable me to think, quote unquote, outside the box when looking at career changes. So I did change careers from theater to working in technology, and that happened partly by way of going to grad school and getting that computer foundation. 
But as I was working in the startup scene, I wanted to be building something myself. I really enjoyed working with these companies. I I would connect them to sources of legal advice or funding through my mentor and other people I met in the New York Angels and other kind of like senior investors in the New York technology scene. I could help connect these startups to resources they needed to move their businesses forward. But I really wanted to be building something for myself. And my wife and I had a talk about it, and she gently dissuaded me from trying to fling caution to the wind and jump into a startup business of my own. And instead, I leveraged some contacts and got a job with the Central Park Conservancy. And I used my technology background, my skills with people, and my sort of creative side to help them realize a new digital face for their visitors. So the Central Park Conservancy is a nonprofit. They raise money for Central Park. They take care of Central Park. They employ all of the staff that works within the park, except for the police and law enforcement. And they had been doing this for a long time through very sort of old methods of fundraising and of throwing gala events. And they were looking to find ways to connect with newer generations digitally. So they hired me. I came in as the sort of overseer of all of the visitor-facing digital. I didn't do IT. I didn't do the database on all the trees in the park. But what I did was I took over the website. I worked with them and an agency working with them on developing a mobile app so that people, park visitors, could use the app to navigate the park and learn about the features and things like that. I helped out with the communications team with uh, digital fundraising efforts, built some new systems. We completely rebuilt the park's website to make it easier for people to find events and find information on things to see and do in the park. The focus previously, before I got there, the focus on the Conservancy's website was much more on fundraising and um, administration. And I feel like after my four years there, the focus on their outward facing digital was much more on visitors, visitor experience, user experience. This was during what I would call the UX revolution that was happening in the early part of the teens of this century, in which people building technology started realizing we can't just build stuff that's cool because we can figure out how to do it. We've got to figure out how to really make that provide value for the people who are going to be using it because that's what drives business. That's what drove business for the startups I worked with was figuring out how to make the technology fit the user's needs. And that's what I feel like I brought to the Central Park Conservancy was my background in the creative arts made me think about the audience experience Always when working on an interactive theater piece, I thought about how is the audience going to perceive this? How are they going to react to this? So when I came to the Conservancy, I started talking to them about how are your visitors going to see this? How are your visitors going to react? The website organization when I got there was made following the structures of the organization, not the structures of how visitors find information. So I started bringing more of a user experience focus to the digital efforts of the Conservancy And if you go to the website nowadays, it is very easy to find out information about this statue or that monument or the other building, to find events, to find tours, to purchase tours, to shop for Central Park swag, like really bringing a focus to that by focusing on the who are your users, what do they want and need, and how can we revise the technology to serve them. I really felt fulfilled working for the Conservancy in being able to increase the visitor experience in their interactions with the digital aspects of Central Park. 
For those interested in checking it out, what's the address? It's centralparknyc.org. It's been a few years since I've been there. Obviously, some things have changed, but I feel like the work we did during the early part of this decade really kind of set the standard for how they're doing digital outreach these days. After that, I wanted to try something different, and I went into the agency world. I had worked a lot with agencies during my time at Central Park, and I wanted to move into that side and start building more projects. At Central Park, I built a lot of different projects, but just for one client, which was the Conservancy and obviously their donors and their visitors. And I really felt like I wanted to go into the agency world to work with a variety of clients. So I took a job at an agency in the city working as the head of the interactive side of things. And this agency was very print-based and traditional media-based, but they were doing more web work and apps and wanted to kind of focus more on that side. So they brought me in. And part of the reason they brought me in is that I have a good knowledge and foundation of the technology, but also through my creative background, I also have a good sense of people and working with people. And I think that's something that's essential in the arts, particularly in music and theater, is interacting with other people is such a fundamental part of that. I developed those soft skills with people over time that's kind of led me to where I am now, which is as a creative technologist, I call myself nowadays a bit more of a sort of creative technology ambassador. So I'm the person who can be in the room with the programmers who can speak jargon for days and the business stakeholders at a client who don't really speak that language, but really have a concrete knowledge of their budgetary constraints, their needs, their business requirements. And I can kind of act as the translator between those two worlds. So just as I had the background in bringing creativity and technology together, nowadays I can use my knowledge of technology and my foundation on the creative arts to act as that translator between different stakeholders, to help business owners and technology come together to create solutions. Yeah, so after working in agency world for a little while, I moved to where I am now, which is I work with a company called Studio Labs. We are what's traditionally called a dev shop. We build technology solutions. We build websites. We build mobile apps. We build complete platforms. We work with startups. We work with big brands. We work with agencies. We um, really try to focus on how can we use technology to solve your business goals? And my role there is working with the clients to assess their business requirements and their current state of technology and help to kind of find a roadmap toward what they want to be offering or what they want to be delivering to their customers or their users. We work with some nonprofits in which the focus is on helping the public. We work with some big brands in which the focus is on selling products and everything in between. So it's a very broad reach and your knowledge needs to be very broad because you're using all different types of technology and approaches to solve the needs of the clients. That's right. So my background in digital technology and building digital products enables me to speak with a client or potential client and hear what they're looking for and then be able to translate that to the developers who know the technology. There's no way to know everything about every technology. There are people much, much smarter and more experienced than me who have that deep, deep technical background in individual technologies. And the best of them have deep, deep knowledge and experience in multiple technologies. I know enough to know which of those people to reach out to and suggest when I hear a client or potential client tell me about their current needs or current problem they need to solve. 
Let's talk about some of the downsides of the work that you do, some of the struggles or the stuff that I guess the opposite of fulfilling. Sure. One thing that I would say right off the bat in answer to that question is that projects like the one I described earlier where we were building the interactive artwork for the large lobby of the big company out in Seattle, projects like that are few and far between. Those are the most fulfilling projects, but those are hard to come by. And it's very difficult to make a living and support a family doing those kind of projects exclusively. So I find that I end up doing a lot of projects that are not as creatively fulfilling. I don't get to build really cool cutting edge technology. I don't get to do large scale artworks or even small scale artworks simply because they don't pay the bills. The reality of working in digital technology is you've got to take the projects that will support you and enable you to continue working in this field. If I had my way, I would do all the creative technology projects all the time. But then it would be feast or famine, no? Exactly. And that's kind of what I found working in theater is that it was really incredibly stimulating and fulfilling to work on different shows, but I had to be constantly working on finding the next gig and or working on whatever was my side hustle at the time, be it I, when I was working in theater in New York City, I was building cabinets for storefronts in Soho on the side. I was doing uh, renovations in apartments in Chelsea on the side. Because that's what you have to do to string together a career in theater unless you're at the very top of the game. Same thing with working in creative technology in the sort of interactive art and interactive performance world. You've got to constantly have a, multiple side hustles in order to make that work. And I think that's true of any art discipline, unless you are funded by government or private grants or well-recognized or on faculty somewhere, you've got to have your side hustles to kind of keep it going. And that's part of why I moved into working more for business clients, because the work is a lot more steady. The company I'm with now have a fantastic roster of clients, and I really enjoy working with them. And so I find my fulfillment in the job well done, rather than in the amazing show or the audience reaction. But there's still room for creativity on your part, no? There certainly is. There's the sort of day-to-day creativity of finding unique ways to solve problems that fulfills that challenge-seeking side of the brain. And then there are opportunities to pursue creative outlets on my own. I recently started meeting with some people here in our community in Cold Spring and Beacon who are using digital technology and making music. And that's something I feel like I've been out of for a while in working more on the business side. And I'm really excited to start working with them. We're kind of kind of forming a collective of digital music in, in our small community and looking forward to getting to express myself creatively. And at the same time, we're also looking for ways to help our clients provide value to their customers by doing more creative outlets. We work with one of our big customers that's a retail client on projects like an interactive video wall in their stores where they can have their products shown on the wall and customers can come in and touch and interact with it. So that's that digital interactivity that really kind of fuels me that I really enjoy working on. So I am looking for ways to inject that creativity into projects I'm working on in in my current work. What qualities or attributes do you think are necessary to work and thrive in this field? Definitely curiosity. You've got to have an open mind and an inquisitive mind. With what I do, there's a lot of 
looking for solutions that aren't obvious, looking for ways to use technology to solve a problem that maybe aren't the way the technology was intended. So for example, a lot of websites and apps use a CMS, content management system. And that content management system is how the people who own the app or the website put the content on the website, the text that they write that goes on the web pages, the stories, the blog posts, the images that they upload, photos, illustrations, things like that. And there are some very kind of standard ways for using a CMS to push content to a website or a mobile app. We often think, how could we use the CMS in ways it's not intended to get other kinds of content there? For example, we have a client that provides meals to people. And we built the CMS to allow them to not just put content and images onto the onto their website and into their service, but also to put food, meals onto their service. So typically you don't think of a CMS managing meals. It also manages weeks and deliveries and things like that. So we use this kind of blog engine that's made for people to write their blog posts and use that to enable this company to power their entire business with this tool that's made for blogging. So we didn't have to build out a full, huge platform for them. They're a startup. This way they save money, and we're able to help them meet those business goals by leveraging existing technologies. So that that sort of curiosity and ways of thinking outside the box and looking around the problem from different angles are certainly something that you need to have. I think it's also important to have a willingness to take risks And the primary way in which I do that is by being willing to suggest solutions or ideas that might seem a little out there or crazy, because sometimes a client might not be interested, but sometimes they may, and that might be, that might end up being the solution to the problem. And if you play it safe and buttoned up and really try to have a very straight view of what is and isn't possible, sometimes you won't come up with the solutions that really kind of drive the answer to the problem. The third thing I would say is that is absolutely essential for the work I'm doing is having empathy, being able to relate to people, being able to relate to their challenges and the things that they're facing. Particularly in the business world, you've got to be able to relate to the client and to their customers so that you can see how you can find the middle ground between the client's budget or political or logistical challenges and their end customers' needs. So you've really got to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes. Also, we were talking earlier about user experience. It's absolutely critical to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to see how they will approach the digital product that you build, how they'll use the app, how they'll view the website. If you think back to discussing smartphones, people nowadays are used to having this computer in their pocket that they're using to check up on their friend's status and check up on their kids' whereabouts and check their grocery list and check their health and fitness metrics. You can't just create a website and put it on that device and expect them to use it when they're used to having so much more rich data and information coming at them. You've really got to create an experience that interests them. I find this a lot when we're working with clients on employee-focused apps. If you give people an app that they have to use for business that is clunky, hard to use. They're not going to do it. They're going to switch over to Facebook. They're going to switch over to Instagram. They're going to say, oh man, why do I have to go use this corporate app again? It's so clunky. It's so hard to use. It doesn't do what I need. Put yourself in their shoes and say, they're used to seamless mobile experiences. That's what we've got to give them in our employee app.
what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar path? That's a really good question. You know, we're talking about being a creative technologist, but I feel like I feel like so much of technology is creative nowadays. It's really in kind of leveraging your own experiences and your own background and finding where there might be a place in the technology world for you based on that. I came from a theater background and an arts background, so creative technology made sense for me. But if you come from a background that is in helping people and serving people, you might be looking into where is the intersection of service and technology rather than arts and technology. If you have an interest in healthcare, maybe it's where is that intersection between healthcare and technology. And then I think where the creative side comes into play is thinking about how you can, as I said before, kind of look at the problem from different angles or look at the field from different angles and think, how is current healthcare technology serving the needs of patients and people and families? And how is it not serving their needs? And kind of come up with ways around that. It's amazing. There's so much you can do with technology nowadays. I feel like younger generations are really good at this, at just saying, you know, I can, I do this on my phone. I can use it to do that. Why not? They're better than, you know, older generations who didn't grow up with this supercomputer in their pocket, who kind of can't step outside the box in a way. It's different wiring. Yeah, I think so. But I think we can rewire just by getting in and using the technology. I think by having an open and inquisitive mind, we can rewire our brains in a way. I think, at least for me, something that has served me well is the fact that I do have that really curious and inquisitive nature, and I'm not afraid to go see what the kids are doing nowadays and check out the latest apps and understand how people are interacting, young people, old people, corporate people. How are people interacting through technology nowadays and what can I learn from it and how can I let that kind of guide my different endeavors? I see a lot of, or I should say I hear a lot of grumbling and complaining about kids and technology these days. And there's this whole meme going around about the boomers versus the millennials. And, you know, that in itself being a meme on digital technology is pretty funny. But I've always kind of been a person that tries to see the positive as well as the negative. And I feel that rather than complaining about what the kids are doing with technology nowadays, by kind of seeing what they're doing and assessing it and looking for the value and the positive in that, that can help us to move toward new solutions to problems. If I were to give advice to people who want to move into this field, I would definitely say it's important to, again, have an open mind, to have a good sense of yourself and really think about what you're interested in and what you want to do and then see where there may be applications of your current interests and strengths in the technology world. It may not be in being a creative technologist. It may be in being a nurturing technologist. If you have interest in the wellness arts, it may be in trying to find where does that intersect with technology and how could I get into a field that could leverage technology to solve some of those kind of issues, to inform people about what's going on with their bodies, to help them to use technology to understand why something hurts or why something feels bad or why certain emotions come up at certain times. And think about how you could get into using technology to 
solve problems or answer questions that you encounter. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.